0: Hey there, this is Manisha. Today's episode is a masterclass in entrepreneurship. At the same time, it is a fantastic story of a husband-wife team, partners in business and partners for life. I'm delighted to share the inspiring story of Hema and Ashok Hattangadi, who turned a small family-owned energy metering company into one of India's finest energy management companies leading to its eventual sale to Schneider Electric in 2009. Hema is a management graduate from IIM Calcutta and Ashok has a master's degree from UT Austin. But their story is about so much more. It includes family politics, the role of a strategic investor and mentor, navigating through the regulatory, social and business environment and how the design philosophy percolated into the culture of the company they built. Hema Hattangadi & Conserve is a case taught at Harvard London Business School UCSF, and Babson's College. If you're an entrepreneur, a spouse, or a co-founder, grab your favorite brew, a notepad, and a pen, plug in your headphones, trust me, you will be taking a lot of notes. Hema and Ashok's story begins back in the 80s, before India's liberalization and sunrise industries, when a young Ashok was about to fly out to the US for his master's degree. Keen to have his son return to India, Ashok was asked by his dad what his plans were.
1: Back in the 80s, you know, family businesses had a very different connotation, which I wasn't very keen on. We didn't have as many professional startups and, uh, you know, the business environment was quite different. I think when in 1984, I got admission to my master's course at the University of Texas at Austin. My dad and I were just chatting about what's good to do, what's... uh, not good to do what sort of courses to take and so on and uh, at that time uh this idea again came up uh, hey why don't we you know do something together so you have something to come back to so at that time tentatively i said yes and um, i definitely was interested in doing something which shaped some amazing technology but then uh you know the the finance in, in those days uh, this was the pre VC world and uh, it literally meant you know scrounging for capital and and that wasn't very great. It also meant that, you know, dealing with all the other icky things like HR and everything else, right? So I wasn't too keen on those. But we did keep talking from time to time and kind of midway through my course, uh, we decided let's go ahead and do it. Because the other thing that happened in those days was the lead times were very long. There were so many registrations and there were so many restrictions and, you know, it was the license raj. So it took us about a, a year to year and a half to get all the paperwork done, which means that we had to have started much before I graduated. So the initial vision for the company was my uh, father's late Hattangri Vasantrao and his entrepreneurial spirit. And he was the one who first came up with this idea of jumping into energy management. At a time when it was more of seminar topic and, you know, really nothing much was happening in the industry. It was even, you know, pre-sunrise. He had just completed a very prestigious career in the post and telegraph department and rising to member of the telecom board. At the Ministry of Communications and had just finished a stint as UNDP telecom expert and decided to take early retirement and put in his uh, savings into creating this enterprise then called Enercon Systems. To create cutting-edge electronic energy management instruments, we started with voltage stabilizers and then moved on to energy meters. Those were our earliest uh, products. But he was far ahead of his times as an engineer, designer and an entrepreneur. And uh, we were making digital instruments uh, when the market was ruled with the mechanical ones that were far cheaper, but you know far more unreliable. So in a nutshell, that's uh, how we began.
0: Then something unusual in the Indian context happened. Hema, who had just entered the family with no plans of joining the family business, was asked to helm the business by none other than Ashok. What? Yes, you heard that right. Here's how it happened.
2: When I married Ashok, I was actually marrying into the promoter's family, you know, and around the time that I graduated 1984 from my uh, commerce from BCom, within a month of that, I got married. And that was the stage that Ashok was describing to you. The company was evolving. It had it was set up first as a partnership firm and so on. Like Ashok said, the products that they were making, they were pretty revolutionary for the time. You know, Voltage stabilizers used to be electromechanical, very unreliable. Uh, Ashok's dad had created something which was electronic and solid state product. Um, he was already talking about saving energy when people were saying, you know, how can I consume as much as I can? So you could already see the gap envision uh, at the time. So like I said, it was uh, started off as a little partnership firm. And when they incorporated as a private limited company, Ashok, his dad and brother, they became 100% shareholders in the company. And my first love was advertising. You know, I used to work in an advertising agency. And there wasn't much to do in this little business. Or so I thought I was a freshly minted IIM graduate. I'd just come out in 87. And I said, what am I going to do? And I don't understand these products. I'm non-technical. So I took on a, you know, part-time role, not ever imagining that that would grow into something way beyond my wildest dreams. One thing that had happened, which actually became a kind of a turning point uh, where I got a much bigger opportunity was that both Ashok and his dad were hardcore designers. You know, in fact, Ashok has been called an engineer's engineer. Both of them wanted to stick with design and manufacturing, didn't want to get into marketing at all. So my father in law's nephews had set up a company and they became our exclusive or sole selling agents and they had branding rights. So it was their brand name that our products went out into the market under. In a few years later that you know that relationship was never very comfortable. We were always cash starved. And I think things came to a head once we had a big standoff with the marketing agency because they would keep coming back every few months and saying, you know what, we've grown so large, you're still so small, we'd like to, we're going to acquire you and you know, you'll have to emerge with us and you will become one of our divisions and Ashok and Anand can, you know, work with us and so on. And uh, the family didn't want, at least Ashok and I certainly didn't want to become part of a company, which whose main business was buildings at the time. So push came to shove, Uh, they walked out, they terminated the contract with no notice. And they actually started importing products overnight and started competing with us. So you can imagine where we stood. So around that time, Indus Venture Management, uh, a company that was set up by T. Thomas, that discovered us. I mean, the story, how they came to us is something for another day. And or you can read about it in my book. But over the entire period of due diligence and investing in the company in tranches, which was over a couple of years, I wasn't introduced to uh, T. Thomas at all. And he would keep asking, you know, Ashok, where is your wife? Uh, Or he'd ask my father-in-law, where's your daughter-in-law? She must be intelligent. She went to IIM. Eventually, I met him on one of his, you know, site visits. And he asked me, so Hema, what do you do? So I told him my design marketing brochures. So he said, ah, so you've been put on a shelf. So I remember clearly I said to him, thank God, Mr. Thomas, I didn't have a shelf life. (laughs) (laughs) And so the venture funds investment was happening year after year after year. Over four years, we were still having cash losses. And the result of that was that the family's ownership came down from 100%. 25%. 25%. Pretty uh, steep fall and you know there was this whole loss of morale in the family etc as you can imagine and um, around this time Ashok's father had kind of decided you know he wanted to take a back uh, seat from the operations. So Ashok was made the managing director. He ran the business for a year and I think he alluded to this uh, earlier but then after some time he got fed up with uh, all everything that running a business entails. He just wanted to go back to the drawing board and design products. So he went to TT and said why don't you make Hema the CEO? And Titi said to Ashok, you know, among the four of you, I felt that she might be the best one for the job, though I didn't want to say it because you're a Indian family, we are venture capitalists who come in from the outside. Anyway, TT followed all the right protocol, held a board meeting so everyone in the family could air their opinions before my appointment was finalized. Obviously, within the family, it was not the most comfortable thing. Here I was, someone who had just entered the family, so to speak, a part-timer, didn't hold a single share, wasn't part of the original vision, etc. And here I was taking over from the founding father and the sons. So dinner table conversations were very stiff. When I started the process of turning the business around, there were arguments, you know, and differences of opinion about what should change and what should not. And I was very lucky that TT as the chairman, as well as the majority investor, supported me, as did Ashok. Without them, obviously, I wouldn't have made it. And over time, things got much better. Ashok's father and uh, brother sold their shares uh, to the fund after two years, and they were lucky because in a small unlisted company, to get an exit was was very fortuitous, and they went their way in a similar line. Over time, we kind of all learned to live together in spite of all these special differences.
0: What a wonderful story. What a wonderful uh, beginning. So this is unusual stuff for an Indian family. This is pretty explosive. You walked into an explosive situation. It's definitely not Ikta Kapoor style, but this is a completely different style that you have over here. And you have the support of your father-in-law, your husband, your principal investor. Tell me a little bit about the role played by T. Thomas.
2: I have a whole chapter uh, in the book on T.T.'s role. It's called More Than Just Money. So you can imagine if I had to devote a chapter there was a whole lot of things he did for us uh, Ashok and me and for the company so basically I think if I look back the thing that stands out the most was that he was a very patient and a very ethical investor. I think today, in today's times, both these words have come to have a lot of serious and deep meaning for both of us as we see what goes on, you know, in the investment world. And he was there for the long term. So that was the most important role he played. And he was role model. He was mentor. He was coach. And he was a connector. You can imagine someone, you know, of his stature uh, could open all kinds of doors. And there were all kinds of useful networks that we got into. I think he also taught us to challenge ourselves and to think big. And my first brush uh, I remember with thinking big uh, came when his senior vice president uh, told me after I just become CEO, he said, uh, Hima, you see your 100% growth from 100,000 US dollars to 200,000 US dollars as a great achievement you know, in your first year. But TT sees you as a $2 million business in two years. And even that he thinks is just the start. I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, I've I've never really even begun to think on those lines. And I think one of his other great contributions was that he used to insist that we have a razor sharp focus on estimating the market size and targeting a market penetration percentage in our annual budgets and not just growth over last year. So sometimes, you know, I would saunter into the board meetings and say that we've got our budget and it's going to be 3x, 4x last time sales and he would say, not good enough. And I think that insistence really helped us to build that perspective into our DNA. And that's why I think we grew the way we did. You know, we had a, a compounded annual growth rate of 35% in sales and profits over a five-year period. He also taught us the importance of tough love. He'd say, do all the right things for the people in the business, but don't get all soppy and maudlin then you have to take tough decisions. And he would say the kindest thing you can do for someone is to be honest when giving negative feedback. Actually, Manisha, I found that if you sugarcoat feedback that isn't very good, it does more harm than good to the company and to the person in the short term. One of the most touching recollections I have, both Ashok and I have, is his habit of handwriting performance appraisals, a pen picture, he would call it, of Ashok and me. Every year at the end of the year, he would do that. And it was very inspiring and energizing for both of us so we built that into all our appraisal forms for everybody and he had a huge bunch of ideas you know on growing the business positioning the product how to deal with adversity how to be compassionate he had a great instinct for people and watching him we realized how important it was to develop that knack and finally he was a learner to the end actually i couldn't fathom this for quite a while you know how could a corporate legend and a titan like p thomas want to continue to learn i mean what else is there to learn I'd just come back from a short course at Harvard Business School and he asked me to take the board uh, through the learnings from the course and to make a presentation on the videos that I had brought back. And he sat there, Manisha, with a notepad and took down notes as I spoke. And it was a very humbling moment for all of us. My management team was there as well and they saw it. I just want to end this piece by saying that in the final analysis, it takes two to tango because I've sat on a few boards now and I've mentored a few startups and I've seen that Founders and CEOs can have great investors, great people on the board who can contribute in many ways, but it works out well only if you're willing to listen and to act on sound advice.
0: Design is a plan for arranging elements in such a way as to best accomplish a particular purpose. Steve Jobs had said, most people make the mistake of thinking design is what it looks like. People think it's the veneer, that the designers are handed this box and told, make it look good. That's not what we think design is. It's not just what it looks like and feels like. Design is how it works. Invariably, this influences how the company behaves and shapes the culture.
1: So design philosophy, I think we need to look at in, uh, in two parts. To me, the first and foremost was necessarily teamwork with the rest of the company. On the one hand, you know, we had uh, people like uh, Steve Jobs, who was famous much later for saying that, you know, customers don't know what they want, just put it out there. That is definitely true to some extent, because if you keep doing Me Too products, uh, you're never going to get up there right in front but at the same time we also needed to do a kind of very rapid mental switch back and forth between what is it that we could do that stands out versus what is it that would meet the customer's uh, needs and requirements the best and that comes only from analyzing several aspects along with the the rest of the team. We learned very quickly that the designers needed to be out in the field to visit customers, to be the first ones to go and analyze products which failed. So one of the things we always did was designer who designed that product would be the first one who would go with the sales engineer to analyze any field problems or field breakdowns. We had a process, we had several processes that we initiated, and this was called loop closure. So closing the loop was something which you will hear over and over again in you know, many of the conserved stories. And I think it became a very important facet of the culture and the teamwork that I was mentioning. So closing the loop also meant looking at uh, orders that we might have lost, looking at inputs from the sales team, from the production engineering team, from the manufacturing team. How do you build products which are more reliable from the ground up? How do you make them easier to manufacture and scale up and so on? So I think all that comes from teamwork. So I'll paraphrase what Ashish Sen said after he traveled and interviewed over 100 conservians when he was co-writing this book with uh, Hema. He said what immediately struck him was that all the conservians used very similar phrases to describe conserve, which was unusual given their uh, diversity, how strongly they were still attached to conserve even though the company didn't exist as such. Even the dealers and distributors wanted to come the moment news spread that a conserve event was happening even though uh, there were floods everywhere. This was uh, August 2017 in uh, Mumbai. They cherished their memories and their times with Conserve. They felt total ownership, that it was easy to go beyond for colleagues and uh, customers. We are a family and we felt we co-owned the company was a common motive that in a nutshell described the culture conserve Megan McCardle I think she said it very nicely that culture cannot be transmitted by writing it down in a manual or by exhorting it through speeches by managers. It's transmitted in a thousand little interactions that show more than tell. Just a few months after this discussion with Ashish on culture we heard from one of our longest serving sales managers Janish Patel who is now a senior uh, in a senior sales position at uh, Schneider Electric. So Chanesh said that he had got a call from an old customer, a textile mill in a remote town, where he had installed a conserved product almost 14 years earlier. The mill owner needed some help with this product, which didn't seem to be working properly. So Chanesh told him, sir, thanks for calling. Conserve was acquired by Schneider Electric seven years ago, but I'll visit you and see how I can uh, help. So although that particular model was obsolete and had been replaced with a newer model by Schneider Electric, Janish said that he felt he couldn't let a Conserve customer down. So he decided to drive the 270 kilometers to the site when he could just as well have not gone. So what had happened was that a high-tension voltage flashover had reset the product, it hadn't burnt out. It had just reset and it had survived the uh, catastrophe and just needed the settings to be reprogrammed. So chenish got it going very quickly and the customer was delighted to see that the product was working just like new. So chenish came back with an order for the newer version of the product and couldn't wait to share this uh, joy with Hema and me. One distributor recalled that when a flagship product had failed at another key site that I'd myself come down with a replacement immediately and worked with a customer to analyze the fault and keep in touch long after the problem was fixed. Uh, you know, this is an example of transmitting culture through action that McIntyre talks about. But I think it also kept us very hands-on and very grounded with reality and also deeply bonded with the rest of our team as well as our users.
0: How did the regulatory social and political environment affect how you operated?
2: So remember, Manisha, we are talking about the early 2000s when the business was growing. And uh, at the time, if you recollect, it was still very, very highly regulated. There were hundreds of laws to comply with. Like Ashok said, it was definitely license Raj. There were import restrictions on so many things. We used to import a few of the components that we needed, which weren't made in India. And we just, you know, couldn't do without them, like integrated circuits, for example. Uh, So we had very high tariff barriers. And, you know, I think one of the worst things was... In the early days, we had to keep going to Delhi. There was actually something called the Development Commissioner of Small Scale Industries he was called DCSSI. And his job was, and I'm doing air quotes here, he was supposed to promote small scale industries and help them to become medium enterprises. But his job, believe it or not, was to approve every single list of components that we wanted to import during the year. So right at the beginning, we had to forecast what kind of products we might sell. And we had to figure out which kind of components we might import for those products. We had to make that list and make sure that we caught everything in because it was attested as it was called or approved for the entire year, you have to go and give that application and wait in the corridors of power in Delhi hoping that he would put that royal seal and say approve now go forth and import those chips without which we couldn't have our products made so you know looking back it's almost like something out of a comedy show you know today you just can't imagine that we lived in times like that but we did and uh, labour laws uh, which unfortunately uh, there isn't all that much liberalisation that's happened as much as I think it should have but labor laws were extremely tight. Remember, the IT industry hadn't exploded that time. So uh, I think a lot of the uh, relaxations and exemptions that have been given to the sunrise industry hadn't happened then. You know, a lot of it has percolated to manufacturing industries. But in those days, they were extremely tight. You know, this country doesn't see too much of legislative reform, you know, in terms of old acts being replaced. It's not You don't see it every day. But in our case, one of the big enablers that happened, luckily for us at the time that our business was just growing, was that we had an extremely innovative power minister. And he realized that we had two acts that needed to, actually one act from 1910 called the Electricity Act, which needed to be replaced, which he did in 2003. And then there was an Energy Conservation Act that he passed, which mandated that customers, industrial users of power and buildings and commercial users of power must set goals and try and save energy. And that eventually there would be a carrot and stick approach and a white certificates, uh, which is, you know, for energy savings, they would issue certificates rather like in the carbon trading mechanism. And their plans were to have an exchange set up so people could trade in that. Well, all of it hasn't happened. But the fact that the government passed those two acts made a huge difference to the way our customers started looking at what we were doing. Uh, But I think coming to the most important part of our environment, I'd like to talk a little bit about the customers and the competition. So our customers, Manisha, were industrial and commercial users of power. And I think we uh, were selling products which helped them to save energy. But the route to the customer was very arduous because the product that we sold, which was an energy meter, was seen as a D category item in their a vendor list it was something that was relegated to the lowest rung in the purchase department and why was why was that the case because it went into an electrical panel board and the value of the meter was five percent of the panel so hence d class and hence you know just shove it all the way down the food chain now what did that do to us as a company we were investing in design in development in marketing branding and above all servicing right supporting the customer and we were constantly getting compared with a fakes and me too products and imitators, which wouldn't probably last the night once the product was put in the panel. So the premium that we used to get on our digital meters was constantly eroding. So the challenge, the paradox was this. How do I convince the end user, which is maybe the head of a cement factory or a textile mill, that if he doesn't buy our accurate product, which has great resolution, he won't know whether he's saving energy or not how do I get the CXO to look at my product? You know, it came to me one day when I was listening to somebody talking about an experience he had. He fell down. He didn't know whether he had a hairline crack or he had broken his leg. He was in terrible pain. He went to the doctor. He was waiting for an x-ray. And, you know, as he was narrating his story, it suddenly occurred to me that when that happens to us and we go for an x-ray and we're standing there getting x-rayed, we are not thinking, what brand is this x-ray machine? And, you know, how can I bring the price down? What we are worried about is, is the doctor going to see whether there's a hairline crack? I'm hoping it's a hairline crack. Uh, what advice is he going to give me? And am I also thinking, how much is this doctor going to charge me? I'm, I'm going to haggle with him about his feet. It just doesn't work that way. So in this moment of, you know, the you could almost see this bulb going on in my head. I said, all this time we have been not positioning ourselves as a company that understands what a customer should do to save energy. We're just giving them boxes as a tool to it. But what if I started telling the CXOs, I know how you can save energy. I understand your problems. We can get sector specific. We'll walk in, do an energy audit and give you a service, which at the end of the day is going to reduce. You'll see a delta in your uh, energy bill. And the moment we started positioning ourselves as that and we added on complement of services energy consulting services to our product business it changed everything dramatically it helped to seal our brand in the position you know in the mind of the customer as someone who's an expert people don't haggle with experts right they just want to know can i save energy or not it's like you're thinking do i have a hairline crack or not and we also managed therefore to arrest the erosion in the price of the product because then people saw us as somebody who knows what we are doing it wasn't easy because I think the biggest thing in all of this was we had to retrain our product engineers. Remember, we were still very small. We were an SME and I didn't have the luxury of going out and saying, okay, so far we were selling products. So I'll have a separate sales team for that, I'll continue with my engineers. Now I'm going to market energy audit services and therefore I'm going to go out and get a new bunch of people and uh, get them to go to the customer and lies with the product sales team. I couldn't do that. So what did I do? I took the head of my energy audit team and made him the head of product sales because I said you're the only guy who can walk in and open doors with what you have to say. Now if you're willing to take up that job you help me with this very difficult job of retraining all our product sales engineers into a consultative selling approach and that is a story by itself no time for that now but that's exactly what we did and that's what helped us in brand building in positioning and in keeping the premium that we got on our products, and above all in attracting the eye of of Schneider, and that's of course another story.
0: I think to me, that is the one line that sort of caps off the entire conserve story because just straddling those two things is ex- extremely difficult to do. Look at tech companies, they struggle so much, they're either product uh, you know oriented in their thought process or they're services oriented. And very few companies have been able to make that change from a product to a service sort of a thing. I think Apple, to some extent, has has done that. But otherwise, it's extremely, extremely difficult. And maybe Amazon, it's, it's debatable, but Amazon is another company that's probably done that as well.
1: When you mentioned uh, straddling products and services, I think there were many other uh, very synergistic uh, outcomes from that. For example, when we design products, we also would look at, how good they were in terms of supporting energy audits and energy analysis. And for that, not only the training of our sales engineers as energy advisors and uh, giving them a background on uh, energy audits and the skills needed for that, but also their interpretation of customer needs through that lens I think brought us very valuable insights on how to shape the product design, the product features, the product performances. And if there was a whole lot of wants and asks from the customer's point of view, what metrics would we use for prioritizing those or for tweaking those? Because the ones that mattered more towards these performance outcomes were the ones which actually helped the products to get ahead in the market as well.
0: Listening to you both talk about this, I'm reminded of what people like to glorify now as the agile product development or using OKRs in performance management. You've done it all without the jargon.
2: I don't even know what OKR is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's objective key results. Yeah, objective key like results. KPIs. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the idea being that you break down your product development into much smaller quarters, right? So you do a specific part of a product, get everyone involved in it and say, this is the common goal that we're all going to shoot for. And that's how we're going to let feedback flow through. So you talked about feedback closure loops, right? All of this is typically an OKR, so you don't wait for an annual performance appraisal cycle or a six monthly cycle, but you break it into really small parts within the product development cycle itself. So you guys have done all of that without the management jargon and yet you found your way into Harvard and as as a case study in Harvard and a case study at Babson's College.
2: Uh, First a little bit of background, Uh, you know we were going through a slightly difficult time in 2002 Uh, There was a recession going on and the team was growing old together. We had become very complacent. So, you know, it was like an old married couple where the husband finishes the wife's sentence, etc. And vice versa. And I began to see this happening. Uh, I remember uh, TT was at one board meeting. He realized that, you know, there was a kind of a staleness in the environment. We were not bubbling with energy as we usually used to. So he said, Hema, you know, uh, I think it's time that you go out and, you know, recharge yourself. Harvard has a lot of very good courses on renewal and uh, leading change. So uh, why don't you go and do that? So I went, did a five-day program. And on the fifth day, I was sitting there and thinking, you know, we had to do uh, introspection about what did we learn. And I must say that very uncharitable thoughts were coming into my mind that I've spent $8,000 on this course. But what did we learn? Everything was meant for these Northrop Grumman and these large companies in the US, I'm a woman running a little business in uh, India. What am I taking away from all of this? And then suddenly, uh, at that point, they were showing us the a clip of the FedEx CEO, Fred Smith, talking about a story where an employee who was supposed to, in a blizzard, uh, deliver a package. He was stuck with it, didn't know what to do. He hired a helicopter. And uh, when the invoice came, he sent it up. It went up the food chain and the chairman just signed it and didn't ask any questions. And I'm sitting there and, and Fred Smith said, the reason we did that is because Here was a loader who lived up to our slogan, which was anywhere in America overnight. And he did that without asking any questions. And I'm sitting there and thinking, my God, if I'd been in Fred Smith's place, I would have done the exact opposite. I would have, you know, blown my top and said, how dare you. I came back and that was a very, you know, a moment of epiphany for me. A lot of personal introspection, learning what kind of a leader was I, etc. Very tough questions. Came back, gathered my team and I said, hey, listen, I don't want to tell you what I learned at Harvard. Uh, in terms of the business. I want to tell you what I learned about myself. And I said, uh, I told them a story and I said, hey guys, why didn't you tell me that I was acting so obnoxious? So they said, you never listened. We've tried telling you so many times, but you never heard us. So, you know, we went through a huge transformation in the business because of that uh, sudden kind of bonding that happened uh, between me and the team, etc. And I started writing, recording the change in metrics at the company as I went around implementing the changes, uh, all the learnings that I had got from this short course. Uh, so Manisha, in 2008, uh, I was sent to the Advanced Management Program at uh, Harvard. And on the last day, I was sitting with a professor who taught us organizational effectiveness. And I was just re- recalling with him that I had learned a lot in his program called Elcor, Leading Change and Organizational Renewal, all those years ago in 2002 how I'd implemented the learning and I showed him the trajectory of conserve and how successful we had become and he suddenly stopped me mid-flow and he said, you know, Hema, just listening to you speak, I I realized that there are so many boxes that you check for a case study when we look for doing case studies, so would you mind if we did a case study on you? I said, I would love it, I mean, who wouldn't, but tell me what those check boxes are and he said, well, firstly, woman entrepreneur. Secondly, uh, you are in the business of energy efficiency, which is the flavor of the year. You are based in India, in Asia, and uh, you've run an ethical uh, organization. So what's not to uh, like? And uh, you won't believe it, within uh, two weeks of my coming back uh, to India after that course, uh, he sent his case writer down, who stayed with us for, I think, two weeks. He interviewed our, our directors, our employees, our even a competitor, our vendors, our lenders, uh, you know, he did a 360 view and, and that's how that case study called Hema, Tungri and Conserve was, uh, came into being Manisha. And it's actually taught in a lot of schools uh, around the world. You know, just for the heck of it, I go and see how many downloads are there on the Harvard Business Review site. And it's always very thrilling to see that uh, London Business School and um, University of San Francisco and Babson College has been teaching it for 11 years. So that's, that's the story.
0: Your story has so many things that every entrepreneur would possibly die for, literally. Now I'm going to ask you about the sale to Schneider because this was just before GFC.
2: Yeah, Manisha. So, you know, uh, a whole bunch of things uh, led to that first moment when we all decided that we should exit, right? We all had to get on the same page first. So firstly, uh, our product portfolio had uh, grown you know, more innovative by the year. It was getting very widely distributed in India. In fact, we had about a 38% market share in digital meters. We were exporting. Uh, TT had urged us uh, in '97 that we should start exporting. So we had offices set up in several countries in the world. We were private labeling for huge multinational, uh, and they were selling in North America. And so we had started getting calls from multinational companies. They wanted strategic partnerships, etc. And we would become very visible in Europe because. Uh, Ashok would take you know, a whole team and go to the Hanover Messe, the uh, most important European trade fair for our products, and that had got the attention of quite a few companies there. So then we began to realize that if you're going to exploit these very, very exciting opportunities, you're going to need a lot more money, more investment deep pockets, and a lot uh, greater management bandwidth than we had at the time. And I for one knew that one of the big things that we needed to do would be to de-risk the company from its over-reliance on Ashok. You know, Ashok, as you can imagine, was the brain of, uh, at the heart and the soul of the R&D team. But we needed to seriously de-risk that because otherwise we really stood to lose our competitive edge. And also it was beginning to tell on his health, etc. And finally, over all the years, with all the things we had done in building human capital, we had built a culture that was, as this Professor Casarian of Babson College told me, he calls it fiercely demanding and deeply caring. Those were the five words he used to define our culture, and we'd gathered a team of driven and competent professionals in the mid to late 30s, many even younger. All of them with a very high sense of integrity, of course, and a feeling of ownership. So, one thought that nagged at me increasingly as I saw the growth and the success was: what lies in store for this fantastic bunch of people? You know, uh, how can I provide them with a much uh, bigger canvas to paint on? And there was, of course, this constant drumbeat in my head of wanting to be a stay-at-home mom. I wanted to be with my preteen son and a preschool daughter, etc. And by mid-2004, I was very clear in my mind that I was ready to exit. So a mutual friend uh, arranged for a meeting for me with the executive vice president at Schneider Electric, based in Paris. And at the end of my presentation at the headquarters, this guy exclaimed, how come you are not on my radar for acquisition? Of course, he said it in his French accent, which I can't replicate. It turned out that exactly at that point, Schneider had drawn up an acquisition matrix. It had four quadrants looking for businesses in India and China and metering and also for businesses that would be in the sunrise industry of energy services, et cetera. So when I finished describing all this, he said, you should have been there, you know, you are in the sweet spot of what I'm looking for. And that was how the process started. Lots of stuff happened. But the culmination of that process was basically due to Schneider's head, Olivier Bloom, who had very young guy, 37, just come down to India. And at that time, the stock market was sky high. So it was a good time to start those negotiations. But like you pointed out, when you asked me that question, the letter of intent, the desire to sell was sort of cast in stone in that contract. Just months before Lehman Brothers. Of course, none of us knew it was going to happen. But when I talk to MBA students now, I like to show off and say that, you know what, I looked into my crystal ball. I knew the world was going to come to an end. <laughs> but that's the true story.
1: Initially, for me, it was a little more difficult to, to come to terms with this. For me, it was, you know, the only job I'd ever done my whole life. What else would I do? Uh, it was only when another friend and uh, uh, advisor and mentor to us, uh, one of Titi's uh, friends who was a venture capitalist in California, one of the oldest venture capital capitalists in California. He had come down uh, to Bangalore and we were talking over dinner one night and he said, you know, Ashok, unless you stick your head out of the window and see what else is out there, how will you ever know? He, uh, you know, painted a very different picture about all the other possibilities and everything else that I could explore now that, you know, my basic professional needs had been met and i had come to some sort of stable, you know, trajectory in terms of my own, uh, you know, uh, aspirations. And I think that one conversation put my mind at ease and, and then I turned to him and I said, okay, let's do it.
0: How do you know when it is enough?
2: I've actually described a lot of internal processes that happened within me, which led to my saying, okay, you know, this much and no more. And the thought process started when on my 40th birthday, I got a call from my and He said, happy birthday. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? You're 40 now. And, you know, without thinking, uh, which meant that it was uh, very close to the surface in my subconscious, I said, I know what I'm not going to do. And he said, what's that? I said, I'm not going to do what I'm doing now for the rest of my life and i think that's when it's like ashok was uh, saying you know i stuck mentally stuck my head out of the window and i was already seeing everything else that i could do but if i were to answer your question in a generalized way i'd say that sometimes you just have to listen to what your inner voice is telling you i don't think it's an external number because no number is big enough if you're chasing numbers right and uh, i remember i was uh, sitting at this Harvard class when when my case was being taught. And then I had to come into the pit and face these 165 CEOs of global corporations. And they're looking at me and they want to tell me how terrible I'd been or how good I was. And then there was this uh, gentleman from a South Indian cement company who said, you know, you had absolutely, uh, you had no right to sell and walk away. You had gone through all that trouble. You had become a beacon. You had become a kind of a role model and an example for all those millions of women in India. And then you say, uh, work-life balance, I want to be with my kids, and you walk away. And, you know, I'm listening to him and I'm thinking, no, even you can't make me regret the decision <laughs> that I signed that L.O.I.
1: We had this process of, you know, frequent uh, taking pause and uh, thinking and renewal. I- in those days, we couldn't even go on proper holidays. So sometimes we would just take off on long weekends. People, our friends thought we were crazy because we would just check into a hotel in Bangalore for a long weekend and, you know, come back to work on Monday. And now people do that, you know. uh, But in those days, friends would say, you guys are nuts. Complete break from uh, the humdrum, the complete break from the routine. I think that also helps you to kind of take pause and think and look around. And that, I think, is very vital Uh, to sometimes uh, get off the treadmill, you know, for a few minutes and uh, think. Unless you do that, it's always that, uh, you know, the right time is long before you think it's the right time. But you never know unless you step off and, you know, look around a little bit.
0: How do you resolve differences of opinion?
2: I think uh, during the business, when we were running the business, it was generally through discussions and debate. Of course, we had uh, differences of, of opinion because I was running the business and he was, you know, running the most critical dimension of R&D and of course sometimes I issued ultimatums when especially when I discovered that you know products were not coming out on time but and that was the toughest interface me saying you know competition is uh, stepping up uh, me too products are taking away our edge. what are we doing about our new products etc and Ashok saying hey I'm not going to put any lemon out there I have to make sure that the product is absolutely good. In that interface, I think the thing that really helped most was that Ashok had a great respect for the process and for the fact that if I was saying that we have got it, got to do it now, put it out there now, warts and all, it doesn't matter, refine it as we go along, but please don't leave a vacuum in the market. He respected that decision because he realized I was doing it in my role as CEO and it was my job. And he would take that and go back to his team and say, hey, guys, you know what, I, everything I've been telling you over the last few months saying, let this beta test get over, let whatever test get over, and then we will put it out there. All that is next." Hema says, we've got to do it and we've got to do it now. So I think that kind of understanding that he had and the respect, that's what finally helped in, in resolution because it can't have been easy for him, but he did it. And I can't imagine too many men in that position doing that.
1: Uh, It wasn't really Ashok versus Hema as, uh, you know, a part of the larger process. So I think that really helped in understanding uh, the overall uh, big picture. But, you know, it was this uh, innate intuition that Hema has always had. So if you look at this in four quadrants, you know, there are times when each of us, both of us would be very sure as to what's to be done, but often at completely different points of view or completely different uh, solutions. If it was related to business, if it was related to you know, the overall running of the company, usually whatever Hema said made more sense, so we'd just go and do that. If it was a completely techie thing, usually I would know that you know uh, intuitively this feels better than that, and so we'd go and do that. So the other example that Hima gave was where she said, you have to pull the plug on something or you have to speed this up. So we went ahead and did that because that was the nature of the overall process and you know the, the discipline that the company followed. It also, I think, times when we went back and uh, reviewed and introspected, but we would always go back and relook at every single product cycle that we did. So one of the things that we realized was that there were very scientific ways of analyzing and segmenting our customers into different categories. You know, much like the hierarchy of uh, market actualization, uh, four levels of uh, market actualization, we started profiling in, in our iLabs, uh, our r and team was called Innovation Labs or iLabs. So we started uh, categorizing our customers into, you know, these hierarchies. And what we discovered is that if we were, uh, so Hema came up with this idea that why don't we structure our uh, iLabs teams to resonate with those uh, characteristics. So, you know, uh, designers who are more uh, risk taking and who are willing to start with a blank sheet, they would go into the Explorer team and the Explorer team would think of these blue sky products and so on. And it so happens that the Explorer category of customers actually is happier with a certain level of uh, bugs in the products. All of these were very counterintuitive. So, if we knew that the Explorer category of customers, you cannot put fatal bugs in it, but lower levels of certain types of bugs are okay, so you can cut down testing on some of them. Through this iterative design process, we learned that if you set a certain uh, target for non critical bugs to go through, which earlier I would absolutely put my foot down on it actually helps the next level of iteration on that product when it reaches the second category of customers that you work a lot more with the evangelist explorer category of customers. They are happy that uh, they contribute to the product development process with ideas and suggestions. And that brought about an amazing bonding with those customers who would otherwise, you know, be our most uh, strident critics. I think it worked. Uh, in many levels to make this process more scientific and also speed up uh, the you know product development cycles a lot and finally the fourth quadrant is where both of us would be absolutely clueless and uh, flummoxed and you know neither of us knew what we should do there were times that happened but at those times, we realized that we were very fortunate in having a wonderful network and ecosystem. And, you know, at those times, you fall back on that network and start, you know, looking at advice. So I think that's kind of how we managed to <laughs> muddle through.
2: Uh, if you had any differences of opinion, I won.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what would you do differently if you had to do it all over again?
2: Um, You know, Manisha, I used to answer this question very differently up until a while ago, but then as I was thinking deeply about this, you know, my answer, I wouldn't change a thing because I believe I am what I am and I've got to where I have because of all the highs and the lows and all the challenges and the opportunities that came my way. So I wouldn't change a thing because I'm very happy where I am now.
1: It's it's actually a tough question to answer because... uh... If you're gonna do it again, um, I think the environment and the circumstances would be different uh, too. And you'd still probably need to muddle through the the way we might have done the first time. So kind of what Amos said, uh, you probably don't get an opportunity to change things too much because you you would do what you do. Um, But at the same time, I think uh, what I might want to change is uh, I think I work my teams too hard. If I could, I think that's one thing uh, that I definitely want to change.
0: Kima, what advice do you have for startup founders?
2: Be agile, listen and learn, dig your heels in and persevere, but don't be reluctant to admit failure. You have to learn to pick yourself up and dust yourself off. Don't get emotionally attached to ideas. Ask the hard questions early on. Build relationships with your stakeholders. And finally, health, family and friends count. So don't let that ball drop. Nothing is
1: worth it. One of the key things is that uh, what you do should at least have a reasonably good overlap with your core competence, and, uh, core competence in some way or the other. Uh, you need to know enough about what you want to get into. You can't start off by saying that you will hire experts for every, every single thing. It doesn't work like that. So, if, if you were able to get the initial startup phase with the basic skills and the competences that you had, and were not afraid to learn and uh, to introspect on the areas that not in your zone of uh, comfort, uh, then I think the chances for success would be a lot better.
0: In a country where startup news is dominated by capital raise, Hema and Ashok's story of building Conserve speaks to a solid case study in entrepreneurship and management. You can read more about their story in Liftoff, Story of Conserve, co-written by Hema and Ashish Sen. That's it from me. Do share the episode with your friends and foes and send me feedback by recording a voice note or dropping in a message on LinkedIn. I'll be back next week with another book and another masterclass, this time on navigating life and work. Until then, stay well.